From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Welcome again to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Very glad to be joined by America's favorite Dominican, Father Brian Mullady. How are you, Padre? Hi, Tom. Fine. Glad to hear that. from Anderson, South Carolina, St. Joseph's Church. You are doing a retreat there, right? Yeah, parish. Yeah, retreat mission class. What is your theme today? Uh, The theme today is on the resurrection. Okay, and that's also going to be our topic that we'll be talking about in just a few minutes. Let me give you that phone number while we can, and that's 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. Outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. And uh, you can also send us an email if you prefer that, openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Brian in the subject line or Thursday. Uh, that would be very helpful for us to sort out, uh, you know, the right email for the right host. So uh, let's talk a little about the fact of resurrection, Father. In the last talk I gave last week, I talked about the necessity of the resurrection, And the necessity of the resurrection can even be proven by reason. If it's true that our soul is immortal, and it's also true as Aristotle taught against Plato, that the body is a necessary part of human nature, so much so that the soul is the form of the body, as the catechism says, then the soul lives forever by implication, so should the body, but doesn't. We have no example in our personal experience. Of course, we believe in the resurrection of Christ. But we have no example in our personal experience of dead bodies living forever. Uh, The reason is because there's no power in the soul to make the body live forever, and there's no power in the body for it to live forever. So when Christ rose from the dead, like a ring to a finger, he gave the solution to both the problem of death and the problem of man. Death is a result of the original sin, a painful death. The problem of man is only fulfilled in the supernatural order and has to be based on grace. And we believe that the resurrection is a miracle of grace because of the fact that there's no power in nature for this to occur. The fact of the resurrection is, therefore, something that comes to us only from faith, but There are, of course, underpinnings for that faith. And the primary one is the fact not only of the empty tomb, which is important, but that Jesus appeared on earth in his resurrected body for 40 days after Easter in order to show his apostles what the final resolution is. And he invited them to realize that it was really his body. It was flesh, it wasn't a ghost, even though it could pass through walls. He ate a piece of fish, 
he invited them to put their hands in the nail prints and his side. And yet today, because of very peculiar ideas in European philosophy for the last 200 years, the fact of the resurrection based on these sensible signs has been greatly questioned. This part partially comes from the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who didn't think he could come to truth through the senses, at least not truths about religion. And so he reformed thinking, he said, by changing the criteria for truth from the correspondence of the thing in our mind to the objective thing that we experience in our senses outside of the mind to the fact that all truth, especially truths like religious truth, were created by us to satisfy some need on our part. And so truth becomes the conformity of the things outside of us to our needs. Now this has led some people, even credible Catholic scholars, to deny the existence of the physical resurrection of Christ. They say it was a transcendental event, which means that he had evaded the senses in a way, but that it wasn't a historical event. And some of these people would maintain that the apostles created the truth of the resurrection from their need to make sense of the passion, and that they made up all these physical appearances and physical touchings. The only objective experience then of Christ would be, if you believed you needed one, which many don't, some do, would be Paul's experience of the risen Lord on the way to Damascus, where there's no touching involved, no mm -hmm. body involved. Mm -hmm. Now, this is completely contrary to the scripture. As you know, in the scripture, all these events are portrayed as Jesus really being present to them. And this real presence is not just in their minds, but it's something which objectively historically occurred. So the fact that this is greatly questioned led the people who wrote the Catechism of the Catholic Church, after going through all the various experiences of touching Christ. Mm -hmm. For example, in 645 of the Catechism, they say, by means of touch and the sharing of meal, the risen Lord expresses direct contact with his disciples. He invites them in this way to recognize that he's not a ghost, and above all, to verify that the risen body in which he appears is the same body that was tortured and crucified. Yet, at the same time, this authentic real body possesses the new properties of a glorious body, which is not limited to space and time. So, even though he appears among us, his fact of his existence can no longer be merely confined to him on earth, but also involves this relationship to him as he is in his person in heaven mm -hmm. and will be completed when he ascends into heaven. Now, also, therefore, the Catechism addresses this modern error. They felt it was so um, prevalent in the present theology of our church that they say this in the two numbers preceding it. Far from showing us a community seized by mystical exaltation, the Gospels present us with disciples demoralized, looking sad and frightened, for they had not believed the holy women returning from the tomb and had regarded their words as idle tale.
When Jesus reveals himself to the eleven on Easter evening, he upbraids them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they hadn't believed those who actually touched him. So they address this modern issue by saying this, even when faced with the reality of the risen Lord, some people still doubted. Given all these testimonies, Christ's resurrection cannot be interpreted as something outside the physical order. And it is impossible not to acknowledge it as an historical fact. It is clear from the facts that the disciples' faith was drastically put to the test by their master's passion and death on the cross, which he himself had foretold. The shock provoked by the passion was so great that some, at least, did not at once believe the news of the resurrection. So they denied the fact that the truth of the resurrection is something that was created merely from our emotional needs when it comes to his physical body, mm-hmm. because the physical body is central to our experience of it. Catholicism is, after all, an extremely incarnational religion. Unlike the Protestants and some others, we do not believe that the Holy Spirit is communicated directly to the soul without some sort of physical mediation. And this, of course, touches the doctrine of Christ the High Priest, because he is both God and man, and physically he dies of the cross and rises of the dead as the priest and the victim, who is present in an unbloody way in the altar. And also, it addresses the fact that Jesus' human nature, including his body now, is the only means by which any of us can experience exaltation in the spirit. So when our Lord rises from the dead like a ring to a finger, mm-hmm. the solution to the problem man is seen. And this physical touching is an extremely important witness to the fact of Jesus's physical resurrection. So we who now believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I'm going to talk in later programs about its implications more for things like the mass. Mm-hmm. It's necessary for us to affirm that even though Jesus' body does have a different relationship to itself, that it is, in fact, a real historical, physical thing. Very good. And, Father, thank you so much for unpacking that. Looking forward to the rest of the show. And, of course, it's your turn now to give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady, live from Anderson, South Carolina, here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. He is uh, handling retreats right now in Anderson, South Carolina, but he's taking out a few moments from his busy schedule to uh, spend a little time with all of us here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. If you have a question for Father, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 
288-3986. Hey, if you've never heard of Church Pop, let me clue you in. It's a wonderful thing. It takes a fresh and fun look at the news shaping our world. Church Pop features engaging, inspiring, and informative Catholic social media content. You can find Church Pop right now by going to Snapchat or Instagram or on the web, if you wish, by going to churchpop.com, churchpop.com. And by the way, you can now get Church Pop directly into your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Will in London, Ontario, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey there, Will, what's on your mind today for Father? Hey, uh, hi, Father. It's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Um, and you were mentioning earlier before the break about um, Christ's re- resurrected body and how um, he's no longer, um, he's outside of, of time and space, and how his body could, you know, do whatever it needs to do to get to where he is. And I was reading in Genesis just this morning the account of uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel, and after uh, after he wrestles with him, he says, I have seen God face to face. And I wonder, um, is there any way that that could have, could have been, you know, Christ that he was wrestling with in a way? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that text refers to some experience that Jacob had as the, one of the founders of the uh, new community and its germ of Israel, but it's, it's not Christ yet. Um, the, the real text concerning Christ from the patriarchal period has to do with the, you know, the prediction of the Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Now, of course, there's long meditations on the strangers that visited Abraham, where they're considered to be a, a kind of symbol for the Trinity. And Moses is said to have spoken with the Lord face to face, which could have been a sort of prelude fleeting prelude of the beatific vision because Moses, of course, will receive the law. But it's not exactly Christ yet. Those are more as the nature of the Messiah is fleshed out down in Isaiah and other authors uh, concerning the suffering servant and things like that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN. Let's go now to Bruce in Harrison, New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bruce, what's on your mind today? Hey, Father, uh, Father uh, thanks for taking my call. I have a good friend. I think this is an easy question for you. Good friend who has been dedicated and very likely uh, in a probably non-denominational church. And uh, I'd like to know, is that person really baptized just by being dedicated, or does this person have to continue to be baptized? You mean experience baptism by water? Uh, yes, yeah, I, they would still need to experience baptism by water. So uh, whatever they think, uh, of course, they're probably very much influenced by uh, our Lord if they're Christian. 
Obviously, the scriptures tell them what they're to do, and they do believe in Christ. But for a person who believes in Christ, for that to be finally ratified, he has to become a member of the church. And uh, if he had baptism by desire, which generally is the case with people who are like catechumens, but haven't been able to experience the baptism by water, then perhaps. But the primary baptism has to be ratified in, in this life by baptism by water. So that's why Jesus Christ said, you know, go to the whole world and teaching the truth, but baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, Bruce, thank you so much for your call. Glad to hear from you in New Jersey. Going now to California, talking with Robert, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Robert, what's on your mind today? Uh, thank you. Um, in, in the Our Father, um, it, part of the prayer is, lead us not into temptation. And I know there's an easy answer to this. I don't know. I get hung up on why would we ask our Father to lead us not into temptation when he wouldn't lead us into temptation to begin with. Um, well, there's two answers to that, really. One is that our Lord allows people to be tempted. After all, he allowed his son Mm -hmm. to be tempted by the devil in order to prove the truth of his humanity, but also that he might survive the temptation, which Adam did not. He isn't internally tempted because he doesn't have concupiscence. But the lead is not, is again, an English translation. You know, the Pope wanted to change that. Mm -hmm. And because he thought some people might misunderstand. The idea is subject us not to the trial, is the translation. And also, um, the Lord uh, doesn't ever directly lead anyone into temptation, but he does allow Satan to test people, as, for example, was the case with Job. Remember, Job says, not for nothing does Job fear God. He fears God for a wrong intention. Mm. And so God allows Satan to take all the material goods away from him and then to experience that horrible disease and even the reproaches of his wife, which was an occasion of sorrow for him too, Mm. in order to demonstrate to Job and others and to Satan that Job feared God for a right intention. But he doesn't positively ever will anyone to be tempted. Okay. Robert, thank you so much for your call. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. We are sold out on the phones at the moment, but uh, when a line becomes available, you're welcome to join in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jim is listening on, uh, in, uh, let's see, Colorado on the great Catholic radio network. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Um, hi. Uh, I'm calling regarding the apostolic blessing. Uh, it's, uh, it's commonly taught and, and, and believed that if you are fortunate enough to receive that blessing just prior to your death, that you are given the fast track to heaven and without any stops in purgatory. And I was wondering, is, is that something that, that's doctrinal, or is that uh, a you know, more uh, like a particular devotion or, or spirituality. Uh, I'm just really uh, confused about that. Okay. Well, I think it's like an indulgence. Uh, the Church has determined that certain actions have certain consequences when it comes to your soul. 
And so if you do good works or something, then uh, the church determines that Christ's own uh, merits will be applied to you in a special way. And I think that's true of the apostolic blessing, too. It's not exactly part of the right, but on the other hand, the church presumes that all things being equal, the priest will give it before a person dies if they're present for the anointing and they haven't died. So I would say it's doctrinal in the sense that indulgences are doctrinal. Okay. Appreciate your call there, Jim. And let's go now to Joe, a first-time caller in Tomball, Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey there, Joe. What's on your mind today? Hi. Yes. Uh, Are the prayers and rosaries heard when prayed by a sinner with mortal sin on his soul? All right. I need more information to answer this question. Uh, do you mean prayers for others, or uh, prayers, prayers are always for answered? Or yes, of course, others. because yes, because it, the efficacy of prayer uh, depends on God's acceptance of it, and God accepts all prayers. He doesn't accept them so the person praying, uh, but the prayers are never wasted or in vain. So. If we expected everybody to be holy and not to have any sins before they said the rosary, um, I don't think we'd have a lot of... (laughs) (laughs) It would would be difficult. It's not quite the same as the priest, as you know. Mm -hmm. Even if a priest is in mortal sin, he can still consecrate the Eucharist. Even if he doesn't believe in the Eucharist, but he wants to do what the Church does, then the Eucharist is consecrated. But prayers are never wasted, no matter what the condition is of the person who says them, unless the person is just saying them pro forma and doesn't believe in themselves, like to be seen by other people or something. Sure. Okay. Joe, thanks so much uh, for your call. Father, we're going to go to break in about two minutes here, but let me ask you this question from uh, an email from Beth. How does the Church reconcile the teaching of in persona Christi with the belief that there is only one Lord Jesus Christ? Well, uh, the impersona Christi, uh, I assume you mean the priest act, the impersona Christi, is that we are ministers of Christ and Christ is acting through us. So it's a beautiful teaching. Unfortunately, people don't seem to understand it too much today, uh, that in every single Mass, the primary celebrant is our Lord from heaven. Mm -hmm. Remember, in the Eucharist, the Council of Trent says, in the sacrifice, the priest is the same, the victim is the same, but the manner of offering differs. And the human priest has the ability in Christ's name, but not as a rival to Christ or a separate person from Christ, or because of any power of his own that he has apart from Christ, to confect the Eucharist. And in that particular action, Remember, all he does is say, uh, this is my body and this is my blood. Mm -hmm. And all the other sacraments, the priest speaks in his own person. I baptize you. I absolve you. But in that particular sacrament, he's not acting in the consecration as the person whose name is on his passport. Ah, He's merely a minister of Christ. So the catechism has a great statement, and so does St. Thomas, that all the priests of the Old Testament succeeded each other because they look forward to Christ. 
the priests in the New Testament act only by his power and his name in them. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what it means to say act in persona Christi Capitus. All right. All right. Very good. And uh, Beth, thank you so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address. Openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put either uh, Thursday or Father Brian in the subject line so we can uh, square those things up. In a moment, we're going to talk with Karen in Connecticut. Also, Marty right here in Birmingham. A couple of lines open, but they're going to go quickly. 833-288-EWTN is the number. 833-288-3986 for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Very glad to be with you on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We do have two lines open right now. They will go quickly, so if you've got a question for Father Brian, my advice is call now. My advice, that is, not my voice. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is that number, 833-288-3986. Karen listening in Connecticut on Facebook Live this afternoon. Hello, Karen, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Father Lady. Uh, this is Dr. Karen Sermley for two. I'm a uh, finally professed third order lay Dominican that meets at the Holy Apostles Seminary in Chapter 116. And my question for you, Father, is as a Providence College graduate, um, I have a 23 year old son named Abraham, and he's presented me with um, a question about um, um, that. Non-believers, uh, let's say Islam or other non-believers, say that Jesus' tomb was open physically, and the reason why Jesus appeared to the apostles was that he walked out of the tomb, he didn't rise from the dead, and that he was living afterward. He just walked around as a person. Um, I don't know how to answer my son, because he's, he's, he, he's come to church with me, but then at times... Um, he won't come to church, and he didn't come to Easter Mass. Um, and he said to me on Easter, um, no, Mommy, I'm not going to, you know, because I don't believe he grows and he's walking around as a normal person, um, you know, I don't want to celebrate Easter. Um, and we would like to invite you to our chapter, Father, either through WebEx um, or if you're physically in Connecticut, um, because our chapter is discerning... Um, uh, how are uh, we lay Dominicans can speak in the world to, in the community, um, to either fallen away Catholics that are believing this apostasy, or how we can reach out to non-believers, Father? Thank okay. You. All right. Very good. Well, your question, I assume what your son means is that he just returned to his normal manner of living in the world. And that would assume, of course, that he didn't die which is uh, uh, strange. It's certainly not the way the Christian church presents this, nor the way the crucifixion is presented. Uh, remember, Christ not only died, but they, after he died, they pierced his side with a lance, his heart, and the blood and water flowed from his heart. So he couldn't have just sort of opened the tomb himself, number one. Remember, the stone was very large that... Uh, uh, was in front of it, and he couldn't just return to the same kind of life that Lazarus had, because that would have mean, meant he would have had to die again, uh, because matter tends to corruption. The way it's always presented, uh, 
and what the Christian church has always believed, and remember St. Paul says we rise and fall on this doctrine, is that Jesus came to exist in a different way in his body after death than he did before. And before, remember the body is created in the parents, but God implants the soul. And so that's why our knowledge is limited to the senses, naturally speaking. Mm -hmm. But in the next life, the soul always exists and the body comes to exist in the manner the soul exists. So since the soul is immortal and it's spiritual, though the body is physical, it's after all the same body that was generated from Mary's womb, that Christ has a whole different relationship to his body. And that's what's, for example, allows him to pass through walls, even though the doors are locked, and that sort of thing. So uh, your son basically doesn't come, I have a feeling, because he just doesn't accept the transcendent nature of the resurrection of the dead. And you can't really be a Christian without accepting that. So uh, I think you need to pray that he'll be more open to receiving the faith and realize what a marvelous, marvelous, though it's true, it's a miracle and it demands faith. Stupendous mystery, the resurrection of yes. the dead is. Yes. It was very hard for the disciples to believe in it, even though they experienced it, because it seems so fantastic to us. Mm. And yet, it's, again, the solution to the problem of man. There's a reasonable underpinning for its necessity. The fact, on the other hand, is something you do need faith to proclaim. Uh, so as we're talking to your chapter, I don't have any plans to visit Connecticut again soon. So um, uh, if I do at some point along the line, maybe we can talk. But uh, I've left uh, teaching at Holy Apostles for good. I retired, and I now live on the West Coast. So unless someone hires me for a mission in the various places, I don't go there. Okay. There you go, Karen. But uh, thank you very much for your gracious invitation. It is, yes, op yes open line uh, Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Let's go to Marty right here in Birmingham, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind today? Well, good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Father. Uh, I have a question. Father, how do you answer atheists and agnostics that look at the seemingly contradictory and um, the resurrection appearances if you look at it just from a purely rational standpoint, not from a point of faith, you know, you're looking at the John and the synoptics, the timeline, and some other things in the resurrection appearances don't seem to make sense. Uh, they seem to contradict each, uh, each other, and it doesn't really follow a, a logical timeline. So how do you respond to that objection? Okay. okay. All right. Well, the evangelists were all looking at the same mysteries from different points of view, and also they were writing to defend these mysteries against people who had different objections to them. So, for example, in the case of Matthew, he's very much influenced by the Jewish mission. And so much of what he writes about Christ has to do with the Jewish perspective. It's one of the reasons why he accepts the testimony of Joseph but you won't find Mary there much because, the, not because nothing happened to Mary, but because the Jews did not accept the testimony of women. On the other hand, Luke is Paul's companion and the Gentiles did accept the testimony of women. 
And so Jew, Jude feel calls upon to explain certain things about the Jewish religion that Matthew doesn't because his followers or his converts don't know about these things. And also why he accepts the testimony of Mary and the infancy narratives are told from the point of view of Mary. I wouldn't say they're necessarily contradictory, but they're certainly complementary. And there are many different appearances of Christ mm-hmm. in different contexts and in different ways. So I don't know, when you say contradictory, I'm not sure I, I quite understand what you mean by that. Because to my mind, they don't contradict each other at all. On the other hand, they are talking about it in a different way. And of course, Math- Mark was Luke Peter's scribe. So he's influenced by Peter's, Peter's preaching. And they say, the ancient manuscripts, that Peter, when he was imprisoned in Rome, sought to evangelize Caesar's households. Because remember, originally Peter and Paul's imprisonment was they were under house arrest, more or less. Well, uh, well, he did this by using Matthew and Luke, but from his own personal experience, he commented on what he had experienced in the same um, episode. Okay. Also, when it comes to John, John's uh, gospel is, is very beautiful and it's very mystical. And it examines the things a lot from the point of view of theology, what the theology is. And so he adds many, many things, probably partially from his own experience, which you won't find in the other places because they weren't dealing with the same problems St. John was dealing with. Okay. And Marty, thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We have a couple lines open. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Sarah now in Gig Harbor, Washington, listening on our longtime partner there, Sacred Heart Radio. Hi, Sarah. What's on your mind today? Hello, Father. Hello. I'm um, wanting to respond to a deacon who was running a a class um, when we were discussing a book, and he said that there are, we're called to a vocation, either to the married life, the single life, the priesthood, or consecrated religious life. And I just don't, I really don't think um, single life is a vocation. So if you just let me know if that's true or not, and then if it's not, where do I read about these vocations? So I can email the deacon and just say, I, I think that you're mistaken. Okay. Oh, no, single life is definitely a vocation. It's the common Christian vocation to witness to our Lord by the performance of the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, uh, by attendance at the sacraments, and also to witness to our Lord by teaching the truth and living the truth. Um, Now, it's in the case of, it's not necessarily marriage, especially people who are younger, because maybe Mr. or Mrs. Wright hasn't come along yet. Uh, in the case of religious life, it's a very definite vocation, but it's one that's based on looking to the next life. Mm. Remember, we're supposed to be signs of what the next life is like, and also what life was like before the sin, to encourage people, whether they're single or married, to embrace uh, their Christian life by the... Uh, uh, understanding of what's actually involved in themselves and, and, and things that are they do. Uh, regarding the priesthood, of course, that's another form of life to which you have to be called. And the priesthood is 
the comparable or could be uh, compatible with both the single life, laity, and the uh, religious life, because there are priests who are either, uh, you know, diocesan priests and don't take vows, or there are priests who are members of religious orders and do take vows. But the priesthood itself is a special calling to be at the minister of all the other sacraments to encourage those vocations and all the other people. So even though we do need to be encouraged in our vocation and to practice the kind of life in prayer and sacraments and self-control that accompanies the celebration of the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. um, even though that's the case, we don't do that necessarily just for ourselves or our immediate families. We do that for the whole human race. But the single life is definitely a vocation because you're conformed by baptism to Christ as priest, prophet, and king, but in the manner a non-ordained or non-professed person would embrace them. Okay. Some people okay. wonder why widows aren't. Well, they are, but remember their whole life is centered on their former marriage. Sure. So, and you can see that by a lot of widows or widowers who so miss their wives, sometimes they get married again, but their whole life is centered. You know, I live with this man or I live with this woman for 40 years and he or she is gone. Mm, yeah. And I, I still feel the loss. And you say, well, you should because you shared all these things. However, it's all a matter of pilgrimage to heaven and you will know these people in heaven and you'll all rejoice together. Looking forward okay. to that. Sarah, thank you so much uh, for your call. It's Open Line Thursday here on EWTN. Do check out a wonderful program we have uh, ready for you called Beyond Damascus. That is coming up on Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. This week, the guys will be talking about Dan Demite's new book, Dream Bigger. So do check it out. It's a great program, especially for uh, teenagers, young adults, uh, really anybody. Uh, but that's that's the primary focus of the show. You will enjoy it. Beyond Damascus, Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Susan in Oklahoma, oh, hmm, Susan in Norman, Oklahoma, Father, asks, where is heaven and where is hell? Every Christian I talk to says something completely different, and that's why I don't trust you people. What do you think, Father? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I don't know about the other people that are Catholic, but we certainly have a definite idea about heaven and hell mm-hmm. and their spiritual conditions. They're not in any particular place. Okay. So the one is hell is someone who has a resurrected body, but does not see God. And that's because of their own will while they were on earth. And therefore the primary punishment of hell is that freedom and nature disagree for forever. Mm. Now, some people put the fire in there. That's to emphasize that they're suffering in torment. Heaven, on the other hand, is the place where people have used their freedom and and grace to go to heaven, to see God. And as a result, since that's the natural end of man, freedom and nature agree in heaven. But they're spiritual conditions. They're not physical conditions. The new heavens and the new earth, remember, are very mysterious things. For one thing, they can't be just like uh, a garden of Eden. Mm. 
because as you know, the sun wasn't created until the third, fourth day in Eden. And in heaven, there is no sun and there is no moon because the word is the light. Yeah. Very good. And thank you so much uh, for your question there, Susan, in Norman, Oklahoma. called And uh, <laughs> it is Open Line Thursday here on EWTN with Father Brian Milady. Let's go now to Jane in Pensacola, Florida. Hey there, Jane, what's on your mind today? Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. I was listening to Dr. David Andrews the other day, and I just had a uh, got the tail end of the, the whole thing. But he was talking about this book, Jesus Calling, by Sarah Young, and I have been reading that for um, three or four years now. Someone had given it to me, and he was saying that it's something we probably shouldn't be reading and focusing because it is um, a Presbyterian, and I know they have, uh, you know, Bible um, um, readings that you should read at the end, but I never have. Okay, Jane. And what would wonder, yeah yeah? What would your question be? Well, I want to know: Are there um, Catholic? Are there daily uh, readings like similar to that? Okay, uh, can you recommend a daily devotional then, Father? Oh, sure. Uh, there are several of them. Uh, In conversation with God mm-hmm. is an extremely useful one. It's ten little books long. Uh, and it's a commentary on all the readings for the days of the liturgical year at Mass. And then a particular favorite of mine is Divine Intimacy by Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene, who has a meditation. Sometimes it corresponds to the readings, especially during Advent and Lent mm-hmm. and Easter. Sometimes it doesn't, but it definitely does on Sunday. Uh, a meditation for every day of the year based on our doctrine. And it's, it's quite beautiful and quite deep. And I have to say that the Sunday reflections are the best little homilies in a page I've ever read on each of the cycles of the year. Oh, really? So I highly recommend the Divine Intimacy to you, which you can get from Ignatius Press, or In Conversation with God, which I believe is now published as an Opus Dei book by Four Courts. Press, I think. All right. Jane, a couple of great resources for you there. Thanks so much for your call. Uh, Paul sent us an email. Is the incarnation proof that humans have a closer relationship with God than angels? Um, gee, I don't know quite how to answer that question. <laughs> Everybody sees God in the face, so I don't know what you mean by a closer relationship. Certainly by nature, the angels are closer to God than we are Mm -hmm. because they're pure spirits. But when it comes to grace, we all have the same chance. And of course, there is one human being who is even greater than the angels in her relationship to God. And that's the mother of Christ. So even the angels, remember, she's the queen of the angels. Even the angels... um, uh, uh, revere Mary because they realize that the way it used to be put in books was she starts out in her dignity where everybody else ends up. Yeah. Isn't that the (laughs) truth? When they see God in the face in Mm -hmm, heaven. mm -hmm. Of course, she does it while she's on earth. She has faith, remember. Blessed are you, Mary, for your firm believing. But the merit even of her faith is greater than any of us because of her close relationship with Christ. 
Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio, going now to Justin in Toledo, listening online, EWTN.com. Justin, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Jeff, actually. Jeff, I'm, all I'm, right. I'm, yes, sir. Uh, Father Brian, uh, God bless you and thank you. Uh, I had a question about a devotion to a particular saint. I was like, I'm kind of a fallen-away Catholic who came through RCIA that way, and then, I don't know, I got out of the church, so I'm sorry, Father, but I'm trying to find my way back, and people are witnessing to me and telling me to have a particular devotion to a saint. And so up the road in Detroit, Michigan, I don't think the man has reached sainthood just yet. He's like Blessed Father Solanus Casey, mm-hmm. and he had a wonderful healing ministry. And I tell you, Father, I could use a miracle. Could you kind of help me, like, I guess I don't even know how to go about it, but how do you have a devotion to a saint? You just ask Father Solanus to, for the miracle? Okay. Well, I'm not sure returning to the church is a miracle. It's uh, certainly a supernatural action, but it's one for which we have a natural tendency, because we have intelligence. Mostly what people do is they have certain favorite saints that are like their friends more than, not not so the others aren't, but they're more like their friends because their journey may have been more like their own. And they understand and they we ask them to help us and to enlighten us and to inspire us. Uh, of course, the primary one is Mary, but after her would be St. Joseph. And then uh, John the Baptist, the one more born in, is greater, greater than a woman is John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And we can go down the list. I can tell you some of my favorite saints are, of course, Thomas Aquinas, because of his depth of intelligence and holiness. Also, St. Dominic, because he's the founder of my order. Mm -hmm. And also, I have a devotion to Thomas Beckett. My religious name is Thomas Beckett. Because I saw the movie. Ah, okay. (laughs) And even though the movie isn't terribly historically accurate, I've always been interested in his life. And it sort of uh, represented it for me in a a way where it helps me to deal with some of my own difficulties and temptations. But what you have to do is you have to try to find someone who's like your dear friend and whom you can confide, who understands all of us seek friends like that. Some of us find them, some of us don't. And also, I have to tell you, there's some non-canonized people. Now, Solanus Casey, of course, eventually will be canonized. Mm. I don't know about that. But people I've known in my life, whom I've considered to be holy, and uh, they've helped me greatly. And even though they're dead now and in heaven, I believe, uh, I can always feel the effects of their helping guide me along the way. So also, as you remember, the holy angels are powerful. Yeah. Aids. And you kind of ask your guardian angel uh, to help you in your journey through life, because that's the reason God created them. I always find the guardian angels quite an interesting mystery, because to think that we are so valuable to the Lord that he has one angelic creature that he made just to guide us. 
is something that I find uh, stupendous. Yes, indeed. Jeff, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. I have a personal devotion to St. Thomas More, Father, and I think it's because of that movie, A Man for All Seasons. It, it hit, oh, me, yeah, it hit me at just the right time during my own personal conversion, and uh, so I, I look to St. Thomas More for, for quite a bit. We have just enough time to get to Kathy in Cold Spring, New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you. Hi, Father Brian Malady. Um, my question is related to my husband's uh, recent sudden passing last month, mm. and um, I'm going through the grieving process, so I'm crying here. I know he's in heaven, and three different people had prophetic words that he is home, um, but I need my, you know, to help me in my journey, I need my family members to um, understand what I'm going through. And then if you have any recommendation on anything from the lives of the saints, um, any particular saint who talks about what, what grief is and, um, you know, anything okay. to help me stay healthy. Very good. Thank you. Well, um, what I would say is it's normal and natural that you grieve greatly for the death of your husband. Uh, St. Augustine has a passage where he talks about the fact that People say you should become so spiritual, you shouldn't feel these things. And he says, that's silly. It's natural, even though if you know your um, husband is in heaven, in, in your estimation, that you would grieve the fact that he's not here where you can see him and touch him, as he was all those years before. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think if you find, again, a, a helpful person, he may be it, um, I've had friends that have died, and I can still feel their actions with me. Wow! Uh, I had a sister friend who we were very close, and she was about 20 years older than I was. And every time I wasn't doing something right, believe me, she'd have plenty to tell me. <laughs> so every time something happens to me, I say, okay, I got the message. I know you're up there <laughs> still helping me to figure out what's going on. Beautiful. Kathy, we're so sorry for your loss. Thank you so much yes. uh, for your call. Father Milady, if you could leave us with a blessing, please. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain forever. Thank you so much, Father, and uh, thanks for checking in with us from Anderson, South Carolina. Don't forget, tomorrow afternoon at the same time, it's going to be our very own Vice President for Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until then, I'm Tom Price. Have a wonderful afternoon, and God bless.